Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. My name is Nick Garisco at Fantasy Law Guy on Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode two of this fantasy football podcast. Hakeem dropped the ball! Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? We'll talk about playoffs. Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. It's my quarterback. What the hell's going on out here? Cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep a trick the ball down the field, boys. I saw it, son. I saw Hello? You play to win the game. Hardly. Sends the Saints to the Super Bowl. In my debut episode of this fantasy football podcast, I broke down the first half of Matthew Barry's famous Top 100 Facts article for the 2020 fantasy football season. Today, we're going to be digging into the weeds of Facts 50 to 100. This is mainly about running backs, receivers, and tight ends. But before we do that, I do have one stat clarification and one stat correction that I need to make from episode one. In that episode, I said that Cam Newton was a top 12 fantasy quarterback in points per game for five of the seven seasons in the seasons prior to 2018. It is true, but it didn't really tell the whole story. He actually finished in the top five in fantasy points per game for five of the eight seasons, uh, including the 2018 season. And he was in the top seven in the last seven of eight seasons before 2019. And I saw that Scott Barrett of FantasyPoints.com posted this, and I wanted to check my own numbers, and I noticed the discrepancy. Well, it wasn't really a discrepancy, but I noticed that he did a much better job of articulating the point, which is that Cam Newton was quite good at posting fantasy football stats And I think there's kind of a false narrative around him that he was just kind of an okay fantasy football quarterback. Scott Barrett also tweeted as a a great stat as a piggyback to his own tweet where he said that in the 25 starts prior to the 2019 season, Cam Newton averaged 22.3 points per game. So Cam Newton was rolling in the 25 games prior to his injury-plagued 2019 fantasy football season. This is all to say that despite his health concerns at times and kind of ongoing right now, Cam Newton has had the a very impressive fantasy football track record, and it's exciting that he's back, if for no other reason that it makes Patriots players draftable and uh, certainly Patriots more entertaining to watch. Uh, the one stat error, that was kind of a clarification. The one stat error that I said I wanted to mention was that I had said at some point in the in the episode, I had said that Josh Allen was a top six quarterback in fantasy points per game in the last two seasons. He was not. Psych! That's the wrong number! Actually, he was a top six quarterback in points last season, and he was a top six in points per game in the second half of 2018 season not top six uh, in points per game for the last two seasons in a row. So I do apologize for the error. Nobody called me out on it, but I did feel it was necessary to mention here in the interest of accuracy and transparency and for general knowledge. And those are certainly values that I want portrayed 
or I want to set the tone with in this fantasy football podcast. Okay, so let's get to the fantasy news of the day. NFL Network's Mike Garofalo said that there is a shot that the Seahawks sign free agent Antonio Brown and that Russell Wilson has reportedly been lobbying for the front office to sign Brown. They've worked out together in San Diego. And Garofalo also reports that Antonio Brown would love to play in Seattle and that he's vying for a team to pick him up soon. Uh, The Seahawks could be one of many teams kind of waiting for the league to make their decision on potential league punishment uh, for Antonio Brown. It has been said that he might miss up to eight games. The reading between the tea leaves, it seems that Antonio Brown's going to be suspended between six and eight games. You have a situation that's kind of similar to Kareem Hunt's suspension to open last season where it's a lengthy suspension. You're going to have to hold him on your bench, but he's going to go in the second half of drafts, fantasy drafts, even after this suspension, assuming he latches on with a team. So as long as Brown stays out of trouble over the next two months, there's a chance, a good chance, I think, that he ends up playing in 2020. There's four teams that I have been keep hearing rumors associated with signing Antonio Brown, and those are the Seattle Seahawks, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the San Francisco 49ers, and the Houston Texans. Uh, the, the Niners made sense, I think, from a perspective because... Well, they potentially lost Debo Samuel for the first six games of the season if he lands on PUP. So all those teams kind of make sense. Obviously, the Texans would because they lost DeAndre Hopkins and they want to replace him with Antonio Brown. Um, the Tampa Bay, just because they're in win-now mode and they just they don't really have a slot receiver. Well, they have Chris Godwin, but they don't have really a third receiver uh, than maybe Scotty Miller. So Antonio Brown would be a great upgrade over there. That, that might be one of the best receiving trios in the history of the league, if that happens, where you have Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, and Antonio Brown. Uh, but certainly, Antonio Brown signing wherever he does is going to really cripple the value of whatever wide receivers are on that team, whether it's Seattle. And right now, one of the things that makes Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf so attractive in the middle rounds of drafts is that there's not really a, a lot of target competition there. Chris Carson doesn't catch a lot of balls out of the backfield. Uh, there's kind of a rotation at tight end they have going there. Don't, they don't really feed a third receiver. So, you know, all the targets in the passing game, even though Seattle's run probably one of the more run-heavy teams in the entire NFL, all the targets were seemingly going to go to DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. And if Antonio Brown shows up, even if it's for the second half of the season in the final eight games, that really kind of hinders what Lockett or Metcalf could do. The same could be said for Mike Evans and Chris Godwin and Rob Gronkowski if it's Tampa Bay. Um, I think the best fit from a fantasy association would probably be the San Francisco 49ers uh, because, again, they're looking for, you know, that that wouldn't really cripple anyone's value that much. I think George Kittle would still be valuable. Debo Samuel would still have his role when he did return healthy. It could allow the 49ers to kind of be patient with Debo Samuel's injury. He's a young player. So I think the Niners, the Texans will be fun too. I mean, the Texans will be really fun. They have Willer Fuller there. They have Brandon Cooks, and they signed Randall Cobb. But uh, Antonio Brown having that alpha receiver uh, for Deshaun Watson, we've seen how that looks in the past with DeAndre Hopkins. I definitely think Antonio Brown can still play. Biggest takeaway, fantasy takeaway here is that Antonio Brown is definitely worth taking a stab at in the later rounds of your fantasy drafts, even right now. The best philosophy, in my opinion, after those rounds – 
is to kind of swing for the fences and draft really all upside players, players who don't have a clear path to success maybe immediately, but if something broke their way, they could be strong finishers or potential league winners down the stretch. And Antonio Brown fits that bill. Certainly in redraft leagues, and especially with ones with thin benches, I think it's going to be hard to roster him for nine weeks. I, I kind of mentioned their Kareem Hunt predicament last uh, year going into drafts. But it, unlike Kareem Hunt, where you don't really know what his role is going to be with Nick Chubb, when he came back from that suspension in Cleveland last year, Antonio Brown's obviously going to be the number one receiver wherever he comes back. I, he's obviously going to be it, at minimum top 20 fantasy receiver when he does come back. So you kind of know what you're getting regardless of what team he's on. And you know you're getting someone valuable after his 8, 10, 6 game suspension, whatever it is. So, you know, any time after round, uh, I would just say 10 to be safe. You know, I'm kind of looking at Antonio Brown. I do think it's kind of worth that dart throw because the opportunity, this is a low risk bet. And, and it could be big profit. The opportunity cost is that late. I mean, is what? Like Robbie Anderson, Golden Tate, um, I don't know, Alshon Jeffrey. I mean, the opportunity cost is minimal, and you could be getting a potential league winner in Antonio Brown. I like it. All right, let's get back to it on the Matthew Berry Top 100 facts for the 2020 fantasy football season, assuming there is one, of course. We ended at fact 48. We had just talked about Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt, and that is a that is such a huge debate in the fantasy football expert community. I mean, every single day I am reading tweets, I am seeing articles about how they view Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb in this new offense. So you can have a whole podcast on that itself, but we've already touched on that. We're going to move on to facts 48, and that's about 48 through 52. That's about Chris Carson here. Uh, Matthew Barry says last season, Chris Carson played nine games. He had, uh, sorry, he had nine games with at least 20 touches. He was top five in the NFL in carries, yards per rush after contact, and runs of 20 plus yards. And from 2018-2019, Carson increased his receptions from 20 to 37 and his targets from 24 to 47. He was more involved in the receiving game last year. And he scored nine touchdowns for the second straight season. Pretty good number there. I think I would take that where Carson's going. And fact 52 right here. Uh, the Seahawks ranked seventh in rush percentage last season. I actually would have guessed it was higher. Fact 52A his competition for carries, Rashad Penny, who is likely to start the season on physically unable to perform the perform list, the PUP list, and soon-to-be 30-year-old Carlos Hyde, who's on a sixth team since 2017. That is really hard to do. That's the definition of a journeyman. And uh, fourth-round pick, DJ Dallas, who Pete Carroll said after the draft, our guys are really a bit excited about him on special teams. The death the dagger to his fantasy football outlook if he was going to have one, DJ Dallas, in his rookie year. Sounds like they drafted him for special teams, at least initially. So my comments on this, I actually think Barry kind of hit these facts on the head right here. I think they're all relevant. And the reason I think Barry said this is because Chris Carson's average draft position is pretty low. 
for a guy who in 14.5 games, he had 278 carries, 1,230 yards, and seven touchdowns rushing. Again, 4.4 yards a carry. Again, with a that's with a bad Seattle offensive line, by the way. Six 100-yard games, pretty good. And again, like Barry said, 47 targets, 37 catches, 266 receiving yards, and two touchdowns via the air. He was used in the passing game like he had not been prior. And there was offseason chatter last offseason, like a year ago today, that the Seahawks wanted to do that. They did. And that's mainly because Rashad Penny isn't exactly a world beater in the receiving game either. Uh, he was Chris Carson was the ninth highest graded running back by Pro Football Focus, and he averaged 16.11 points per game. That would have ranked RB10 in points per game last year. And these are kind of my facts to kind of piggyback off Barry's here. Uh, Chris Carson, his ADP right now, despite RB10 last year and his competition not really changing. I mean, if you replace Rashard Penny with Carlos Hyde, if you consider that kind of a, a wash or, a, or an equal replacement level there, you know, this guy was RB10 last year, great numbers in 14.5 games. He had fumbling issues too. And that's not to brag on Chris Carson, but the, the good news is he fumbled, I think, five, lost a fumble five times last year. I think it led the league for running backs. And he lost a fumble in his three straight opening games. Yet Pete Carroll stuck with him, and it seemed like every game where they kind of gave Rashad Penny an opportunity to take more touches, it seemed like the next game, if you kind of go back and look at Carson's game log, you know, Carson was rushing for 100 yards and like two touchdowns. That's kind of how it was. Carson, you know, whether it's been battling injuries throughout his career, battling his undrafted status, he's always been a guy who has battled adversity. And it seems like whenever he fumbled and Chris, uh, Pete Carroll's like, he kind of benched him in game. The next game, Pete Carroll always went back to him and Chris Carson always made him proud for sticking with him. So, I would say he has pretty good job security. I don't think Carson, uh, Carlos Hyde is going to come in there and beat him from a talent perspective or from a receiving perspective. Carlos Hyde's always been a zero in the receiving game. So anyway, Carson kind of has this RB1 duty on one of the most run-heavy teams in Seattle in the entire NFL. So, And obviously having that dual-threat quarterback will help, like Russell Wilson will help open up those rushing lanes, kind of freezes defensive ends. And that read option will help Chris Carson's efficiency. So point of all this is, despite all that, he's going RB22 in FFPC high stakes fantasy football drafts. And that is a, in Fantasy Pro's ADP, 35th overall, Chris Carson. And again, that's despite him being RB10 in points per game last year, where nothing has really changed in this offense. So yeah, I mean, I'm with, I'm with Matthew Barry on this. I think that the one has a. I don't. I don't personally have him RB ten in my rankings. Um, I don't have him all the way down to RB twenty two, where his average draft position is either. Uh, my hesitation is: Will the hip injury that he's had surgery on this offseason, Will that injury give a little bit of a hole for Carlos Hyde to kind of break through and kind of earn a role drafting players who are kind of an injury risk, who are kind of had offseason surgery. Chris Carson's one of these guys, so I don't have him at RB10. But yeah, I see Barry's point that he should not be—he uh, should be drafted higher than 35th, probably overall, especially when everybody's craving all these running backs. Let's move on to 53 to 56 weeks one through six before his injury. 
David Johnson averaged 17.7 touches a game. And during that stretch, he was top two in the NFL in receiving yards per game for a running back and routes run per game for a running back and also yards per reception for a running back. Top two. So I guess he was number two, or he would have just said he was number one. Um, he was David Johnson was also fifth best running back in fantasy in that span. Again, that's that's not a that's not a you know really small sample size. That's weeks one through six. It's not like we're saying oh th- the first three games. No, that's that's six games there, almost halfway through the season. And fact fifty six last season for the Houston Texans, Carlos Hyde and Duke Johnson they combined for fourteen hundred and eighty rushing yards, fifty four receptions for. 452 receiving yards, and 14 total touchdowns on 382 touches. If you combine their stats, that player would have had the second most touches for as any running back and the fifth best would have been the fifth best running back in fantasy football. I don't particularly like that stat that much because Duke Johnson's still on the Texans. So it's not like both of them are gone. Just Hyde is gone. So Duke Johnson's still going to probably have a third down role with the Texans. I know David Johnson is Good as a receiver. David Johnson will get passing downs, of course. But it's not like Duke Johnson, who they just traded a third-round pick for last offseason, is going to just disappear into oblivion. So I wouldn't combine their stats and say, oh, yeah, he could be RB5. I'm I'm not quite willing to go that far. But I do like Barry's point in Fact 56 where, where he said it was the second most touches of any running back, or it would have been at least. I think that's relevant because... It speaks to the point that Bill O'Brien and Houston Texans actually do like to run the football. I know they have Deshaun Watson, but keep in mind, they just got rid of DeAndre Hopkins basically for David Johnson. So if that doesn't speak to wanting to run the ball, then I don't know what does. Now, there are other issues here. Will their crappy defense allow them to run the ball? Will they probably be in a lot more negative game scripts? The Houston Texans won a lot of very close games. They were kind of lucky in that department in, in order to go 10-6 and six last year. I think regression's coming from that end, and I think they might be on the negative end of that script next year. But I don't know if their defense will allow them to. And the other question, of course, we don't know if his health will allow him to. Back injuries are pretty serious from what I have heard. And it usually is a sign that a running back may be breaking down. And that's the big concern. I, I don't think people realize, on one hand, like what Barry said, I don't think people realize how good David Johnson was for the Cardinals in six weeks last week. When he went down, I, I believe I had him at RB2. Christian McCaffrey, 29.5 points a game. Dalvin Cook, 15, uh, sorry, 21.44 points per game in his 15 games. And yeah, David Johnson, RB3, if you were to extrapolate his six games over, 20.21 points per game. So he would have ranked RB3 at that time. So yeah, that's uh, he was he was playing quite well. Uh, and a lot of people just, that's not the narrative on there, David Johnson. A lot of people do forget that. But yeah, is... Is the back injury going to make him break down? That's kind of the worry here. Uh, let's move on to another running back that you could argue is maybe breaking down, and that's Le'Veon Bell, kind of in the same situation as David Johnson where he's got this uh, third to fifth, even fifth. I've seen him go as late as the fifth round, but usually third to fourth round uh, average draft position where he's supposed to be the bell cow on his team. They may, may not be a good team. The Jets are not projected to be a good team. Here are the facts. Uh, from 57 to 60. Last season, Le'Veon Bell was eighth in touches per game. 
He had four total touchdowns on 311 touches. That is a great stat by Matthew Barry because it speaks to positive touchdown regression there. Uh, the other eight running backs with at least 300 touches last season averaged 11.5 touchdowns. Not four, 11.5. Love that here. I think that's some of the best information in this article. Uh, and then this offseason, the Jets signed center Connor McGovern um, from the Denver. They uh, signed tackle George Fant from Seattle. They drafted six foot seven, 364-pound uh, Jacobs blocking trophy winner Makai Becton in the first round. And as of this writing, Le'Veon Bell's ADP is the fifth round. Uh, all positives, because that's his that's his stance on Le'Veon Bell. It's not necessarily that he's going to be a top 12 RB, but that he should be drafted higher than the fifth round. Uh, just probably based on workload and positive touchdown regression alone is I, I get the, the gist of it here. Uh, I think Barry's arguing that the Jets can't possibly be any worse from an offensive line standpoint. And that's a that seems factually correct to me, or I think I believe it's a good opinion to me. So um, Sam Darnold had mono last year, the kissing disease, and that sidelined him for three games and probably affected his play and health and others. And when he came back, he just wasn't the same. It kind of took him a while to get going. Remember, there was that game where he kind of saw ghosts against the uh, Patriots on national TV. And I don't want to go out there and get embarrassed on Monday Night Football in front of everybody. His what contributed to that was his league worst offensive line that could not block a soul. Um, kind of pun, no pun intended with the ghost and soul reference. But I think that Sam Darnold's 2019 season being a disaster and the Jets upgrading their offensive line, they, they switched four of their five starters on the offensive line. They moved. So while you could argue continuity issues in the wake of COVID, they're not going to be able to practice together a lot. I mean, it, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. I don't think it could get any worse. The argument against Le'Veon Bell and against pretty much any Jet player uh, is, or New York Jet, I should say, is Adam Gase, right? The world. It's kind of an interesting coaching study. Not to go on a rant here, but all the stats say that Adam Gase should be a terrible coach. His offenses, with other than Peyton Manning offenses, have been terrible. Like, bottom basement seller dweller of the league. And there's a lot of synonyms there. But but yet, he always outproduces his win expectation. Adam Gase never really has terrible seeds. Like, the Jets were 7-9 and nine last year. They won. They went 6-2 and two in their last eight games. It was against a soft schedule, but yeah, Adam Gase, even with Miami, when he was with Miami and their offenses consistently sucked and they did nothing, whether the quarterback was Ryan Tannehill or whoever they had running whatever kind of offense they were having, they were garbage and a pure dumpster fire. Yet the Dolphins were always kind of going seven and nine. You're like, gosh, how are the Dolphins that decent? So Adam Gase just kind of has this tendency to hold on to his ranks. That's a rant. We're not going to keep going on that. But let's get to what is relevant about Adam Gase is that his pace and his plays rank, his plays and his pace rank, this is per Pat Thorman, who's kind of an expert in this. He works for EstablishTheRun.com, at Pat underscore Thorman on Twitter. He's kind of the pace expert in the fantasy community. I'm going to to just read you his uh, plays and pace rank. This is how many plays, or sorry, the ranking of how many plays his offenses have run. In 2015, 18th. 
uh, out of 32, of course. 2016, 32nd, last in the NFL. 2017, 22nd most plays run. 2018, 32nd, so last again in plays run. 2018 and 2019, 28th in plays run. Now, you can make the argument maybe he's trying to slow the game down and not run a lot of plays because his quarterbacks haven't been good, but Gay statistically ranked near the top of this category with the league when he had Peyton Manning running the show. Again, this is a pretty large sample size here with Sam Darnold and Ryan Tannehill and other quarterbacks here. Um, uh, 27th in pace uh, in, in pace rank in 2015, 31st in 2016, 29th in 2017, 32nd in 2018, and 21st last year. Dowell Log- Loggins, his offense, the Jets' offensive coordinator, also consistently ranks near the bottom of the league in pace. 28th last year, of course, 32nd the year before, 31st the year before that, the year before that, 2016, 30th, the year before that, 15th, 2014, we're going all the way back, 19th, 2013, 15th in plays uh, uh, run, 2012, 32nd. So yeah, the Jets are not going to run a lot of plays. Now, before you kind of brush that off, oh, well, you know, I don't know how much that really means. If the Jets run, let's say, let's say they run 60 fewer plays over the course of the season. That doesn't sound like a lot of plays per game, does it? Right? It's really not. I mean, it's just a little over three fewer plays a game that they're running. It doesn't sound like a lot. Over the course of the season, if it if it comes up to 60 snaps that they lose over the offensive snaps that they lose over the course of the season, that's a full game's worth. Wouldn't you rather your players be playing 16 games rather than 15 games? I think so. So it's important to keep in mind. I mean, if 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 one team has run 120 more plays than another team, then those fantasy players on that team are playing two more games than the team with a fewer amount of snaps. That's crazy. So these plays can add up there, is my point. So that's that's why it's a little tough for me to kind of stomach these Jets players. I don't normally like drafting players on terrible teams anyway, and the Jets do have a potential to be very bad. Adam Gase doesn't even like Le'Veon Bell. He's kind of been against them publicly since he's traded there. How do we know the Jets don't suck for the first couple, first half of the season and then Le'Veon Bell's on the trade block? That's a real, very realistic scenario for Le'Veon Bell. So I would prefer DJ David Johnson over Le'Veon Bell with similar ADP there. In fact, picking Le'Veon Bell just kind of makes me a little nauseous, kind of queasy when I hit that draft button in a mock. So uh, let's move on. Pick 60 through 66 are about the Eagles running back, uh, Miles Sanders. Uh, In the 64 regular season games, Doug Peterson has been head coach of the Eagles. There have only been six instances which a running back got 20 carries. So 64 games with Doug Peterson, only six where a running back got 20 carries. Pretty big stat there. Stack 62, those six instances came from four different running backs. So it's more of a tendency not to lean to one guy. 63, in the first seven games last season, when Jordan Howard, Alshon Jeffrey, Zach Ertz, Dallas Goddard, Nelson Aguilar, and sometimes Deshaun Jacksons were healthy, Miles Sanders averaged 11 touches a game. So, And in the seven-game stretch, which is the first seven games, only one time did the Eagles running back get more than 15 touches in a game. And from week 14 on last season, Boston Scott averaged 15 touches per game. From week 14 on, Boston Scott, not Miles Sanders, Boston Scott. 
In fact, 66 is one of the most surprising stats here that I learned. Boston Scott was the seventh best running back in fantasy during that stretch from week 14 on through week 17. So why is Barry saying all this? It's because the Miles Sanders hype is getting out of control in the fantasy community. He's going seventh overall in many experts drafts. Uh, seventh overall, Miles Sanders. The reason Miles Sanders is being drafted so high is because he's so versatile and he's a pretty talented guy. Uh, in the final seven games, he posted really good numbers. This is post-bye week and post-Jordan Howard injury. And this is minus an early week 17 exit against the Giants. Miles Sanders had 108 rushes for 499 yards and two touchdowns, 4.6 yards a carry. 36 targets, 28 catches, 212 receiving yards, and two touchdowns. And that's in, again, that's in seven games. So a good feel for kind of extrapolating that is, you know, that's almost half a season, basically. So you want to double all those numbers. That can kind of be a feel for what you could have gotten out of Miles Sanders in the second half of last season over a full season. That was 17.6 points per game. And that was very high. That was, that was if I'm looking at my chart right here, that was RB7. So he would have been RB7. And I think that's why a lot of the hype exists. And the Eagles did nothing to bring in more running back competition over the offseason. So you have a situation where the experts are extremely high on Miles Sanders. There's a lot of hype surrounding him. I can't emphasize that enough in the expert community. Because I think when you look at ESPN rankings or projections right now, or you even look at like Fantasy Pros ADP right now, Miles Sanders' ranking or draft position is low. It's like in the 20s. But I'm telling you, in these professional drafts and in these high-stakes FFPC drafts, he is going 7th overall to 10th overall. Now, I do think that that's going to come down a little once the public kind of more public gets on board and starts drafting and be like, gosh, Miles Sanders, you know, I like the thought of him, but he's not exactly, you know, proven. I mean, one of the counter arguments, uh, which, by the way, I love that Barry, Matthew Barry, is taking a stance against Miles Sanders because that's a take that I highly respect, not necessarily because I agree with it, but also just because I think he is willingly put himself out there to not be in line with the groupthink within the expert community, right? There's a lot of groupthink among the industry, and Matthew Barry's saying, no, I don't get this Miles Sanders hype, and I'm not buying it. I spot the train. I'm taking it out. Um, Barry's saying, basically, no way I would touch him in round one. So, And that's kind of where Miles Sanders is trending up to right now. Uh, one of my biggest game-logging arguments against Miles Sanders is that in those final seven games— Three of his performances over 12 fantasy points came against Miami, Washington, and Dallas. They're dreadful defenses right there. So that's kind of a game-logging red flag where he had these three blow-up games in his final seven games that kind of put up his stats to 17.6 points per game. And they were against three bad, arguably you know, tanking defenses in Miami and Washington, and Dallas was no good. So... So that's kind of alarming right there. But even more alarming, Barry argues, is that uh, Boston Scott, the Eagles' backup running back, uh, who's kind of like Darren Sproles, who comes in on passing downs and mixes in a lot of receptions, seventh-best running back in fantasy during that stretch. So right, uh, you know, similar numbers to Miles Sanders during that stretch. 
So the Eagles just were feeding their running backs relentlessly because I guess because of all the injuries they had to their pass catchers. But maybe Barry's alluding to the fact that, or to the idea that, yeah, the Eagles didn't bring in a lot of competition for Miles Sanders in the offseason. They didn't draft running backs. They didn't sign anyone like Carlos Hyde, although it was rumored that they wanted to, or Devonta Freeman, or Lamar Miller. They didn't do that. But maybe they really like Boston Scott. So different beat, re- beat, beat writers for the Eagles have been involved in saying this is Miles Sanders' backfield, but Boston Scott's going to have a role. But if Boston Scott's finishing as, you know, taking that many touches, 15 touches per game from week 14 on, and yes, Sanders did have a little bit of injury. Cons- uh, I think he left week 17 early. Basically, we have an unproven back. I wouldn't say unproven. We know he's pretty talented, but he seems pretty talented. But unproven in terms of you're going to spend your first-round pick on him. Not a huge sample size of, of, of fantasy greatness here. But there are a lot of—I'm going to give you some of the other side of this and the reasons for optimism, okay? So he did seem to get better every week. I think TJ Hernandez, 4 for 4 football at TJ Hernandez, put it well when he said Miles Sanders could easily be a 200-carry, 80-target back in 2020. There have been 61 such backs since 1992. His, for the record, just interrupting his— his pace stats, 220 carries and 80 targets, that did sound about right in the final seven games when Jordan Howard was out of the picture. So uh, TJ Hernandez saying his average PPR points of those backs with 200 carries, 80 targets, 336 fantasy points. 42 of them broke. 42 out of the 61 broke 300 fantasy points. Only one failed to break 200 fantasy points. I would love to know who that is, but we don't. But he's saying that if Miles Sanders does get that 200 carries and 80 targets, which, I mean, Miles Sanders is great as a receiver, and I think that's one of the reasons the experts are so high on him. We could see that. Then, yeah, he has a very high likelihood, according to Hernandez, to finish with above 300 uh, PPR points. Graham Barfield of Fantasy Points, at Graham Barfield, he said a list of running backs that ran more pass routes than Miles Sanders, 208, in the weeks 11 through 17 when Jordan Howard was out for the season. Only Christian McCaffrey with 304, Ezekiel Elliott, 228 and a surprising name Leonard Fournette at 219. So Miles Sanders was fourth in running back pass routes run from weeks 11 through 17 after uh, Jordan Howard's down. Greg Cosell, a uh, NFL Films guru guy, he said that uh, Miles Sanders is a guy we should be looking at from a fantasy perspective. He's going to be their number one running back and he's a very good receiver. Um, I look at Miles Sanders as someone who's ready to become a big time back in this league. That's what Cosell said. He's kind of a renowned film guru. Um, so he believes in Miles Sanders' talent. Uh, the counter argument, uh, again, is, and I love this point, and this is kind of how I feel, uh, to be totally honest, is Miles Sanders is being priced. This is by John, oh, sorry, this is by John DeMint at Dynasty John, J O N, not J O H N. Uh, uh, he works for fan, uh, Dynasty Nerds. He says that, or he tweeted that Miles Sanders is being priced as if he's already had the season that everyone hopes he'll have. And I love that sentiment right there. I think that's a great point, and I do tend to agree with it. So we will see. It'll be really interesting to see how high Sanders climbs up draft boards because uh, it seems like he's the early expert, one of the early experts' darlings here. And I just don't know if the public's going to be on board with him as a mid-first-round pick. Uh, I think he's going to end up, personally, my opinion is that he's or prediction at least, is going to end up around the turn, around picks 11 through 14, that round one, round two turn. 
Let's move on uh, to uh, Jordan Howard here. Uh, fact 67 last season, there were only five running backs who had a higher percentage of carries that went for 10 yards than Jordan Howard. So there were also through 10 weeks through the season where Jordan Howard's healthy, Howard was RB 20. Since Howard entered the NFL in 2016, he's third in rushing. Third in rushing since entered the 16. I never would have guessed that. And he's seventh in rushing touchdowns. I could have seen that. And then in last year's NFL draft, the Miami Dolphins drafted three offensive linemen in the first four rounds. And Howard's ADP is RB38. Uh, Jordan Howard is definitely one of the better rushers in the NFL, quietly. He quietly always outproduces, or he does produce good numbers on the ground year after year. Regardless of his situation, he's been on different teams, Bears, Eagles, now Dolphins. Um, but, but PBR formats kind of do such a disservice for Jordan Howard, right? I mean, he had 10 catches in those nine games last year. He kind of relied on his touchdowns. Again, he scored seven touchdowns in his nine games or nine full games. Um, and that was with the Eagles in their great offensive line. And it was with their great quarterback. Uh, and on a good team with positive game scripts, which Jordan Howard desperately needs because he's not a factor in the receiving game. So despite all that, he was still 20th in points per game when he went down, 30th over the course of the season in points per game. So by my numbers, at least, that's kind of the argument against him. Now he's going to Miami where he's not going to have positive game script. Miami's going to be the losing team. He doesn't, I know Barry mentioned that he, they drafted three or four offensive linemen in the first four rounds, but that's not the Eagles offensive line last year. It was one of the better offensive lines in the entire NFL. Miami's got a long way to go before that. And definitely a quarterback downgrade from Carson Wentz to Ryan Fitzpatrick. So, and definitely a team downgrade. Not as many positive scripts. I mentioned that a lot because, again, Howard is definitely a, a script-dependent running back here. So, um, while all these are facts by Matthew Barry, I, I don't know if I'm, uh, I'm quite on board with him being near uh, RB20. In full point PPR leagues, at least. So let's move on to the wide receivers. Uh, over the last three years, Stephon Diggs, when he was on the field, Adam Thielen was targeted on 25.1% of his routes. That's a 25% target share. That is very high, for those of you who don't know. If it doesn't sound high, it is. During that, only a number of players, by the way, have reached that 25% threshold um, for target share. Uh, last year, during that same stretch, Thielen was uh, he had scored on 11% of his receptions with Diggs off the field, compared with 7% of his catch uh, touchdown, 7% of his catches were, were resulting in a touchdown with Diggs on the field. So a minor difference there. And for his career, Thielen is averaging 22.8 fantasy points per game when seeing at least nine targets. Um, I don't usually love those stats because when people see a lot of generally when when players like who are decently as good as Adam Thielen see a lot of targets, yeah, they're going to accrue a lot of fancy points. I mean, that's just usually how it works. But I will say 22.8 is particularly high, uh, and it kind of speaks to how efficient and good Thielen has been. Only Because only one, fact 72, you'll see only one receiver last season had more than that allotted point, 22.8 points per game. And that was Michael Thomas with 23.4 points per game. And obviously his fact, 72, which Barry likes to do, is state the obvious here. Uh, is his last fact, Stephon Diggs is now on the Buffalo Bills. So the point here is that Adam Thielen's going to have uh, the run 
at receiver here. And he should be getting a lot of targets. And if he's getting at least nine targets a game, he should be averaging close to 22 fantasy points per game. That would be a dream scenario. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna provide some more uh, context for these stats here. Uh, after Thielen had kind of had a breakout year in 2018, where he had 150 tar- 153 targets, so that's over 90 game, and uh, 113 catches for 1,373 yards and nine touchdowns. People forgot. People do generally forget how great he was that year, but it was a tale of two seasons. Remember, he had eight straight 100-yard receiving games to open the 2018 season. It tied Calvin Johnson's historic record of most 100-yard receiving games in a row. He was wide receiver number one through the first half, and then in the second half of the season, he totally tailed off, and it wasn't really because of injury. He really tailed off, and he finished like in the second half, the final eight games, he was like receiver 36 or something like that. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I can get to that later and make that correction. But it was in the receiver 30 range, so he totally tailed off. And this was in the 2018 season. Last season, obviously, he had the bulky hamstring injury plague season, which is hard to take really anything from. Uh, if you want to take, try to take some for, for some splits from this, in the six games pre-hamstring injury, he was 16.45 points a game. But that that's not bad. That's actually quite good. I think it's top 12 numbers in points per game. But he had six touchdowns in those six games. And that's touchdowns can be kind of fluky, non-sticky stat over the year. So it doesn't really tell the whole story. Uh, in, the, in the 10 games, if you, if you count all the 10 games where Adam Thielen started and finished the game, Right now, he may have been playing through a hamstring injury, but he started and finished the game. So I excluded two games, week seven and nine, where he kind of limped off, like maybe after the first quarter. So if you do the ten games, this is including playoffs too. Uh, actually, two playoff games. Um, he had 134 fantasy points in the ten games. That ends up being 13.4 points per game. So not as good as the 16 number that he had prior to the 16. Uh, prior to the hamstring injury. But again, that number was also kind of aided by touchdowns. Uh, I think a healthy Adam Thielen may be a top 10 actual reality wide receiver in the NFL. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Um, Again, I mentioned what he did in 2018. My stance on Adam Thielen kind of really depends on where or how Minnesota plans to deploy Justin Jefferson, right? Because I know Justin Jefferson is not going to come in and be Stephon Diggs. I get that Adam Thielen is definitely going to get an up, uptick in targets. And I get that he's going to be healthy. And he's a really nice bounce-back candidate this year. And I fully support his average draft position being in round three or four or wherever it is. I, I'm about it. However, um, my one question mark when it comes to Thielen is that Justin Jefferson, it's not that he's going to come in and be Stephon Diggs and just kind of, you know, cancel in, any increased value out. It's that Justin Jefferson plays primarily in the slot. I mean, he was some 90% of the time in the slot at LSU with Joe Brady running the show. And in I think the Vikings may have drafted him with that in mind. So is Jeff- Justin Jefferson going to come in there and take Adam Thielen's Slot routes because Adam Thielen has been one of the most efficient receivers in the NFL in the slot. And if they're going to force Adam Thielen to play outside on every on almost every snap, that's not going to be great because that means that he's not going to be able to get away from that number one cornerback that maybe Stephon Diggs was 
holding up. So interesting things, interesting stuff to see what comes to fruition with Justin Jefferson, how he plays in the slot and how that affects Leland's role. And unfortunately, we're probably not going to really know because it sounds like preseason is going to only have one game at best. And this is something you would want to see in preseason and kind of act on in a later draft. So let's move on. Brandon Cooks, 72 targets in 14 games for the Rams last year. Uh, Cooks is now with the Texans. The only player over the past two seasons with 150-plus catches and a drop rate of less than 1% is current Rams wide receiver Robert Woods. Last season, Woods was ninth among all receivers in targets per game and yards per game. He was second in yards run, uh, sorry, routes run per game. He was 12th best receiver in fantasy points per game. And as of this writing, his ADP is wide receiver 17. Over the last two seasons, Woods was eighth best receiver in fantasy. And then Barry mentions a bunch of uh, wide receivers that Robert Woods has more total fantasy points than during the last two years, including Odell Beckham, Chris Godwin, Galladay, Allen Robinson, Juju Smith-Schuster, DJ Moore, Adam Thielen, etc. Um, as of this writing, all the players listed above are being drafted ahead of Robert Woods. So pretty persuasive argument to be drafting Robert Woods higher. Basically, in a lot of the metrics, Robert Woods finished much higher than wide receiver 17, Yet, and even in the top 10, yet he is uh, going at receiver 17. I, I'm shocked. I'm actually floored that Matthew Berry... I'm stunned, honestly, that Matthew Berry did not include this in his 100 Facts article about Robert Woods. It's one of my favorite facts about Robert Woods. Maybe my favorite fact about Robert Woods. If I was going to make an argument in favor of Robert Woods, this is what I would lead with. So I'm, I'm stunned that it's not in the article. But uh, Robert Woods splits first and second half of the season, first eight games pre-bye week, and second, a final seven games post-bye week. Okay, I'm going to give you some numbers here. So typical splitting stat right here. Uh, First eight games, 7.5 targets. Final seven games, 9.7 targets a game. Um, First eight games, 4.75 catches per game. Final seven games, 6.4 catches a game. First eight games, 58.87 receiving yards a game. Final seven games, 83 0.71 receiving yards a game. First eight games, one touchdown. Final seven games, two touchdowns. So the touchdowns were still low, and the positive touchdown aggression is one great argument in favor of, of drafting Robert Woods higher. But here's what you need to know. First eight games, 12.27 fantasy points per game for Robert Woods. Final seven games, 19.24. That is a point difference and Robert Woods if you extrapolate his final seven games over a full season not only does he have over 105 catches but he has he is wide receiver four behind Michael Thomas Chris Godwin and Devontae Adams and then Robert Woods so that's my favorite Robert Woods stat I'm shocked that Barry didn't have it in there but Either way, I think the hardest part about drafting Robert Woods earlier is this. Barry mentioned a bunch of receivers going off the board ahead of Robert Woods. And because, you know, Robert Woods has scored, outscored them in the last two years. Well, a lot of those receivers had different situations two years ago, or they weren't full-time players or they were hurt or whatever. 
I'm going to list some of the players ahead of Robert Woods, even knowing all that you know about Robert Woods now. And, I mean, you think to yourself. I mean, you tell me if you would draft Robert Woods over these guys. Allen Robinson? Kenny Galladay? Calvin Ridley? Yeah, maybe I could see that. But a lot of people are high on Ridley this year. Adam Thielen? We just talked about how he's a good pick. Juju Smith-Schuster? That's a pretty obvious rebound pick there. Amari Cooper, who was excellent before he got hurt last season. And DJ Moore, who was amazing last season. These are all the guys in that like receiver, you know, 9 to 17 range. Who are you going to take Robert Woods above out of that list? I mean, you can make the argument for Cortland Sutton, which I think we will do later, but man, I mean, those are some really good receivers, and it kind of just supports the idea that when you're in the 30s and you're in the 40s and you're getting wide receivers like that, that's something to think about when you're drafting at the end of round one and you're deciding between running backs and wide receivers. It sounds like round four is going to be very heavy. It sounds like on wide receivers, it sounds like nine or ten of the 12 picks in typical round fours might be wide receivers. So something to keep in mind when you're deciding between positions early in the draft. Uh, fact 83 through 84 is about Michael Gallup Giddy up. and Amari Cooper. In the nine games from week on, Gallup led the Cowboys in target share, receiving yards, and receiving touchdowns, averaging 15.3 fantasy points per game. From week nine on last season, Cooper averaged 12.9 fantasy points per game. And he gives a bunch of stats and kind of tries to show that Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup were much closer than they seemed last year in the second half of last year. In fact, Gallup actually outproduced Amari Cooper in the second half of last year. What this article fails to mention, this is clearly going on a narrative, because what this article fails to mention is that it's not taking into account Amari Cooper's injury. I mean, it's difficult to tell whether Matthew Barry is advocating Amari Cooper being drafted too high or Gallup being drafted too low, and maybe it's as simple as he wants them closer in ADP, and that's fine. But this nothing is mentioned about his, his, his injury. He mentions that Cooper in 15 games, 16.35 points a game, and that Gallup in 14 games, 15.2 points a game. They were very close in the whole season run, and Gallup actually outproduced him in the second half. But look at the splits for Amari Cooper before he got hurt. Let me let, let's run through his game log. Let's go through Amari. Let's get the full context here. Let's go through Amari Cooper's game log. Week 10, Amari Cooper had a precautionary MRI that actually before we even start with week 10, let's just go in chronological order. Let's not mix it up here. Amari Cooper's first eight games, weeks one through ten, minus an early exit in week in uh week six against the Jets. If you exclude that game from the equation, just go from a points per game's perspective. First eight games, excluding the Jets game where he went out in the first quarter, uh, I think after like six snaps, Amari Cooper averaged. I mean, scored 178.5 fantasy points in eight games. That's on pace for obviously over 320. And and it was 22.31 points per game. Right up there, right behind Michael Thomas as receiver two. This is his first eight games of last season. Do you remember Amari Cooper being that dominant? Because I did not. And it probably was because I didn't have a lot of shares of Amari Cooper because I avoided him because of his plantar fasciitis issue I did not realize he was that dominant before game logging. So receiver two behind Michael Thomas in the first eight games. Now you have the bye. Then you have week 10, 
precautionary MRI that revealed just a knee bruise for Amari Cooper. Week 11, though, 56% snap rate. Does that sound right for Amari Cooper? No. Week 12, he was shouted by Stephon Gilmore in a game with driving rain, and Cooper was invisible and he was checking in and out of the game. Didn't seem like he was right that game. Week 13, needed an x-ray on his knee. Week 14, Cooper didn't look like himself moving. These are in the game notes. Um, not moving as crispy as usual, according to Roto World. Uh, taking, he took frequent breathers. Missing snaps. Week 15, Dallas steamrolled the Rams. Cooper and Gallup only combined for two catches from Dak because Zeke and Tony Pollard both had over 100 yards, rushing yards. They didn't even need the passing game there. In week 16, Cooper ex- exited the game in crucial situations of a must-win game. In the second half against the Eagles. so And that was fighting for their playoffs. And Cooper was exiting. Then they award Cooper with this $100 million contract. So, no, Cooper was not healthy. Obviously, Dallas believes that Cooper was not healthy weeks 10 through 16. And that needs to be mentioned. And that's the only reason their bottom line numbers came close. Listen, I love Michael Gallup. Michael Gallup was on... He and Dalvin Cook were my like two of my poster boys for the. I had Michael Gallup and Dalvin Cook on almost every single team last year, but Michael Gallup, although he dominated in Week 17, and although he he did step up in the second half of the season, Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup were not close in the first half of the season when all things were healthy. Amari Cooper vastly outproduced Michael Gallup, and I see why he's going that high in the draft. Uh, if anything, you know, you can try to make the argument that maybe CeeDee Lamb's presence will kind of lower Mark Cooper and Michael Gallup's value. But again, I think that this uh, set of stats is somewhat misleading by Matthew Barry. Um, let's move on. Last, uh, last season, Cortland Sutton had a 26% target share, sixth highest in the NFL in terms of total team targets. Uh, last season, he only had three games with more than five catches. He also had 55.1% career catch rate. That is ranking 74th among qualified receivers in that span. Cortland Sutton was awesome last year. He's, he had a sensational sophomore campaign and averaged 15.4 yards a catch near the top of the league. I, I think on film... Sutton looked like an all-pro. I mean, he was dominating really good corners. He's got 6'4 size, very physical, and he drew the most defensive pass interference penalties in the NFL with 12, which is, I think, a pretty cool stat because it means that some fantasy points were kind of left on the table if defenders weren't cheating. But this year, unfortunately, the Broncos spent their first two draft picks on highly regarded receivers, Jerry Judy and K.J. Hamler, the speedler. uh, Sorry, the speedler, the speedster. And they also added Melvin Gordon, who's kind of been a touchdown scoring machine. And Noah Fant enters year two. And this is all with Drew Locke, who's kind of a new quarterback, with Drew Locke last year. And Quentin Sutton's 16 games with like Flacco and Brandon Allen and Locke, just total in his total 16 games, 13.9 points per game. In the five games with Locke, weeks 13 through 17, only eight targets per game, 4.4 catches a game, 56 yards a game, and 0.4 touchdowns. It was only 12.4 points per game in fantasy. So Denver Broncos having more mouths to feed this year. Um, and I know that's a big cliche. I see why I see why experts are kind of fading on Cortland Sutton a little bit. 
our last series of facts uh, is about tight end Rob Gronkowski. And he's kind of a polarizing player, right? I mean, always has been, but especially coming out of retirement. In 2018, Barry says that he only had three games with more than four catches. He tied a career low with three touchdowns. You're like, okay, yeah. I mean, Barry's going to be off on Rob Gronkowski. Interesting. But then he says, fact 94A, he still finished as tight end nine that season. That's with only three touchdowns, a career low, and only three games with more than four catches. That's pretty persuasive. And it kind of speaks to how bad tight ends were last year. And then last season under Bruce Arians, despite inconsistent tight end production, Tampa Bay was 11th in tight end targets and tight end red zone targets. So Matthew Barry is on team Rob Gronkowski as a top 10 tight end. And generally I've seen him around the tight end nine or the tight end eight in most uh, experts draft and on ADPs alike. Uh, I've mentioned that I'm going to probably bet the under on Tom Brady throwing for 5,100 passing yards last year, which is what Jameis Winston threw for. A lot of people don't realize that Jameis Winston actually led the NFL in passing yards last year. Uh, But I mentioned that in episode one, why I don't think they're going to get there. But I want to kind of talk about what I don't understand about the Tampa Bay fantasy hype. This is what I don't get. Jameis Winston led the league in passing yards last year, and he still, despite leading the league, still only supported two top 10 receivers in Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. He couldn't support a third fantasy option. He could not support O.J. Howard. And I'm not saying that it's not going to be Gronk that benefits from Brady, but unless you believe Tom Brady is hitting the over on 30 touchdowns or the over on... 5,000 passing yards, which I don't, then chances are he's not supporting three skill position players as top 10 options. And right now, Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, and Grob Gronkowski are all ranked in the top 10 of fantasy options and are being drafted as such. O.J. Howard was one of the biggest busts in fantasy football last year, and I was high on him. And it was a huge mistake. And I was also high on Chris Godwin. And I liked Mike Evans, too. And I drafted Chris Godwin on a ton of teams, and I should have realized, how is Jameis Winston going to support all these guys? Well, it turns out Jameis Winston almost could have. He threw for 5,000 yards. He damn well tried to support three fantasy options, but he couldn't do it. So how is Tom Brady going to do that? You can make the argument that Tom Brady is just going to be better than Jameis Winston, but it's not about being better. It's about throwing for more yards. That's what it's about statistics. And the other thing is Cameron Brate, Backup tight end, O.J. Howard, they're no slouches. Howard may have busted last year, but he's no slouch. This might be a tight end rotation. Maybe Gronk will be used on the money downs, the third downs, and maybe that's where Brady will butter his bread. But here we have Godwin and Evans' surefire second-round picks. And then some of those same experts are ranking Gronk as a top-10 tight end. I don't see it. I don't think it adds up. I think somebody is going to let people down. And it may be all three. All right, let's get to the fantasy nugget of the day. This one is about LSU's pride and joy and the greatest college quarterback to ever step on the field. That is Joe Burrow. You get two nuggets in this episode in honor of episode two. 
It's not going to continue like that. But Joe Burrow is the fifth quarterback to enter the NFL with 8,500 or more passing yards and 800 or more rushing yards in fewer than 40 games. The other four who did that, who accomplished that, again, 8,500 or more passing yards and 800 or more rushing yards in fewer than 40 games. The other four quarterbacks who've ever done that, Andrew Luck, Pat Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, and Lamar Jackson. So all recent, all amazing, really speaks volumes to how good Joe Burrow could be. And that fact, that nugget was brought to you by Addison Hayes, at Amaze Hayes, great Twitter name. Uh, She works for DL Football. And then my second nugget of the day, also about Joe Burrow, a twofer. Joe Burrow threw for 463 yards and five touchdowns and no interceptions in the college football playoff national championship game. It was his second lowest single game passer rating of the season. 463 yards, five touchdowns, and no picks in the national championship game. It was his second lowest single game passer rating last season. Second lowest. That stat is from Cody Warsham, who I believe works for the LSU Sports Network. So great stuff there, Addison and Cody, for hyping up Joe Burrow, who, by the way, is going on average as quarterback 18 in high stakes drafts. That will conclude today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed listening. Please subscribe to this podcast and give me a five-star rating. That kind of stuff really helps the new podcast grow. Uh, You can follow me on Instagram at FantasyLawGuy and pose your fantasy questions uh, to my account on Instagram, and I will answer them on the show. Thanks for tuning in. 